Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. I'm Ewan Graham, and I'm the executive director of La Trobe, Asia. Uh, Ewan, you come bearing gifts in the form of interview clips with Chinese scholar Zhu Fang. So who is Zhu Fang? And can you give me a bit of context? Why were you interviewing him and how did this come about? Well, I've interacted with uh, Zhu Feng, who's a professor in Nanjing University and runs his own South China Sea study centre there for a few years. We met on the sidelines of the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, beginning of June. And I said, then um, come on down to Melbourne when you get the opportunity. Mm. And then uh, it turned out he was at a conference in Canberra. So so, so still pending on the Melbourne trip? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that'll be the work in progress for next time round. But um uh, he was very generous in in giving up some of his time in a busy schedule to talk to us. Mm. And were you surprised that he said yes? Well, in the climate of freedom of speech, if it can be called that in China, um, it's never easy for scholars to say what they want. But uh, obviously, the room for expression has got that much tighter in, in recent years. So mm. I was uh, not expecting him, frankly, to say yes. So this was late on Sunday night. Um, I had a uh, a couple of microphones in tow, one of which worked, one of which didn't. So the recording is a little bit on the amateur side, but it's quality of uh, content rather than uh, anything else. And we're very lucky that we got some of uh, of Zhu Feng's time, but uh, it's a little bit scrapey in places. Yeah, that's... Uh... Still worth a good listen then. So uh, if you could give us context then, the first topic that you went into was about uh, the US relationship with China and the current kind of escalation of tariff wars, isn't it? Yeah, so start with the big picture. Obviously, US-China is the number one weather-setting story in in the region and uh, the so-called trade war. So I put the question to him whether it's regarded as a trade war in in China or, or something deeper. Of course, I don't think, you know, the conflict between Beijing and Washington is just some sort of tradable only or commercial only. Real conflict goes much beyond such a trade uh, friction. The reason is, uh, superficially, we also see the trade war as lingering, developing into some sort of high-tech war, penetrating very deep into the, almost all the corner of our relations, male-male relations, almost just polarized. Then we will see the, a lot of the Chinese scholars also being perceived as some sort of China's agent of government. They are just have suffered from the revocation of the visa and also got into interrogated by the FBI agent. Then there's a long list of the Chinese high-tech companies and firms being blacklisted by the American government for the market access for some sort of high-tech collaboration. So then, to be honest, I see current, you know, the tension between Beijing and Washington is some sort of a uh, new Cold War. The Cold War does not just uh, has a present as some sort of a basic way as we usually see uh, in Soviet Union and the United States confrontation. Such a traditional Cold War was characterized with some sort of a geopolitical uh, split and a geopolitical confrontation. But it doesn't happen to uh, Beijing and Washington back. Unfortunately, on the high-tech, you know, just the corporation, on the market access, 
on trade wars and unbelievably、uh, hiking the tariff. It's also caused some sort of a new spirit between the both sides. Then we will see U.S. trying to decoupling itself from the Chinese access, not just the how they waste the market, but also waste the high tech, waste the、uh, some sort of research fellows and, and、uh, senior scientists. This kind of a new division, new spirit. Between the both countries, over high tech, over market access, over investment, in the feasibility. So Jungfung talked about the trade war being a symptom of a larger relationship problem between the two countries, but he also used the term Cold War. Did this surprise you at all? Well, it's being discussed here whether Cold War is actually an appropriate metaphor or not. So I thought it was significant that a leading Chinese scholar volunteered that term himself to underline, I think, the gravity of the. Divide between the U.S. and China.、Uh, he said that、um, it was a serious split between the two countries. I thought it was also interesting that he said that the split was not just a kind of rerun of the of the Cold War, but one that would reinforce the emergence of different high tech systems on both sides. In that sense, it might be a kind of self fulfilling prophecy. Unfortunately,、mm. and we've just had the G20 in Osaka where Trump and Xi Jinping met, and there were developments on this front. Can you bring the story up to date a bit? So I spoke just before the G20 meeting in Osaka, and was asking whether there was a prospect of a, a deal there. And Zhu Feng downplayed that, and thought that any deal was not really going to change the fundamentals of of the geopolitical competition between the U.S. and China. And that's been proved right. There was talk about a, a pause, a, a truce, but no more than that.、Mm. The topic then moved on to the South China Sea, which is of special interest to Zhu Feng, isn't it? Well, he specialises in the South China Sea, running his own centre in Nanjing University.、Uh, he obviously is privy to, I think, a lot of the Chinese thinking around the South China Sea, and moves regularly through the region, talking to people in Southeast Asia. So, I think his、uh, his read is a pretty good reflection of what's thought at a high level in policy circles. The key issue, of course, futures, you know, expectable sustainable stability in the South China Sea depends on the two factors. One is China and the ASEAN countries should rebuild some sort of their、uh, looting cooperation mechanism over、uh, maritime sources, over、uh, even just the、uh, gas and oil. Development, but on the other hand, another factor I think is also very important: COC negotiation should be accelerate and become some sort of a new framing factor to keep all the sides behaving themselves. So then, my view is this: uncertain factor in South China Sea is not between China and the Clement State, but just between the U.S. and China. Then we will see. With the Americans growing frequency of the phone apps、uh, negotiation, so then、uh, South China Sea becomes some sort of high state place. If some sort of incident just has a collision happen, it probably will cause a very very、uh, serious you know the confrontation between the both sides. So then I like to see、uh, such a incidental. Uh, bumping between the two countries, fishing boats between Philippines and Beijing, even just、uh, some sort of small things. But most、uh, uncertain factors, we should、uh, keep the eye open, are、uh, watching for 
what kind of maritime、uh, security posture will be between Beijing and Washington. I like how he used the term "incidental bumping" there to describe the collision between the Chinese and the Philippines fishing boats. Do you believe it, it was that innocent? He made it sound like something that they'd get out and swap insurance details about. My sense is that because of the position that Zhu Feng holds on the South China Sea, more than any other topic, I think he's going to be quite guarded in what he says, and it's reasonably close to the Chinese government line, i.e., that this was a small incident which、um, should be downplayed, and that the real cause of provocation is、uh, the U.S. and its、uh, FONOPs or freedom of navigation operations. You then follow up with a discussion on China's position of the South China Seas and the other players that are in the area, don't you? Yeah, I asked him about the increasing frequency of of、uh, European navies、uh, and Australia too, trying to basically ask him that this is not just a binary U.S.-China situation in the South China Sea, but it's really more of an international concern, and I think he acknowledged that. I think such a geopolitical complexity in South China Sea now is going deeper and even more broader. The reason is Fonaps is not just conducted by the U.S., also by U.K., French, probably German, also become a newcomer. Then on the other hand, we will see a multi-joint military drilling in the South China Sea by Japan, India, Australia, and U.S. Other、uh, Western powers also now is staged from time to time. So then, South China Sea issue is truly become the most impending、uh, fresh points in the West Pacific. I think the Beijing's bottom line is very clear. First is we needed to、uh, boost you know the negotiation with the ASEAN as a main compart in the stability maintenance. And even some sort of、uh, new measure creating to realize、uh, stability in South China Sea. Then, second, of course, with the Chinese naval capability just going very, very impressive, then we will see the U.S. now is paying more attention to the maritime area in Indo-Pacific area. So, South China Sea also has been locked up as a some sort of a leading. Power game in place. Such a things is harder to、uh, resolve because Collins' main irritation out of the South China Sea is not just the how say unresolved, unsettled territorial disputes. Instead, it's become some sort of a new testing ground of a great power gaming and a great power competition. From this point, I see that China should show. Consistent policy position. On the one hand, we should just have very powerfully tell the world there is no any action Beijing will adapt to disrupt sea lane, you know, the security and the safety. So freedom of navigation, not just serve United States and other players, but also serve the China's interest at the best. The other is also see. Some sort of a mill-mill negotiation between U.S. and China should be urgently jump-started because both navy needed develop some sort of confidence-building measures and also exchange the views on how identify with some sort of common interest rather than just get stuck in exchange finger points. 
criticizing each other for the impolar militarization, the USA, the China just lead to the militarization of South China Sea. Then, ironically, the Beijing also say Americans found apps and some sort of、uh, regular military、uh, drilling in South China Sea. Ultimate evidence of Americans remilitarization, you know, the push forward. All the parties should recognize、uh, South China Sea issue、uh, need to be managed, need to be settled. But the only way is military relations and even productive、uh, diplomatic endeavor. I find his response a bit neutral on the part of China, and I was under the impression that there was a clear possession of territory. Aspect here to the South China Seas. Well, that's what makes Zhu Feng so interesting because I think you can almost hear the wheels turning. He has a keen analytical mind, and while at one point he's stating effectively the Chinese government position, he's also critiquing it and adding a little bit here and there. That's why the nuances in those kinds of interviews, I think, are the really interesting bit. Now we've had a recent election in Australia, which saw the Conservative government of Scott Morrison return to power. A result that surprised many. How would you describe Australia's relationship with China now, and why is that something that you wanted to bring up in this interview? Well, Professor Zhu is not an Australia specialist.、Uh, he doesn't travel here very often, so I thought it would be good just to sound him out what he thought about the relationship, where it sits in the hierarchy of China's interests, and to ask him that question. Well, you know, did China see the election result coming any more than anyone else? And he said, no. China had been following the polls. They were. Surprised by that, and that seems to be borne out by what we've heard since that China is now effectively trying to recalibrate for a situation that it didn't expect. Basically speaking,、uh, recently election outcome a little bit surprised Beijing because when we very carefully look into the polling prior to election, indicated Conservative Party probably lost its dream in, in re-election. But when recent election outcome is a truly reminder to Beijing, so then we should be paying more attention to Australia's domestic politics and really caring about what's a people's choice, what's a some sort of reading demands. So then that kind of reinforced understanding. Just has a serve some sort of a very important ground where the Beijing's policy of Australia, of course, the China should. Really use our relations with the Australian as a testing ball on how the region could be more accommodative to a rise in China, or region will be more antagonistic to China. So it's totally useless for China just to complain. For example, who is ruling Australia? Current government is、uh, China friendly or is China hawkish? I don't think it will just mean ultimately some sort of a leading、uh, measurement. Most important measurement for China's quality of Australia's、uh, relation and Australian policy is we should get Australia feel more comfortable with rise China and more secure with some sort of its、uh, bilateral relations with China. So there were a couple of things that were interesting in his response on Australia. First of all, he said China should be realistic about its expectations of what it can achieve. That Australia isn't going to go into the middle between China and the、uh, U.S. It's closer to the United States, and he understood that. I think that reflects a, a realist form of of thinking. But he also said Australia is a test case for China of countries. 
that uh, can accommodate a rising China. That's interesting because it's also rather close to the formulation that Hugh White uses, a leading influential figure in the debate here, that this is something that actually feeds into Beijing's objective. Strategically, in the media long run, I see it's quite hard for Australia to sit in the middle. So its ally system has been long term, you know, just uh, sustaining. Then even culturally and ideologically, there are a lot of similarity between the Canberra and Washington. So it's really unrealistic for China policy goal of Australia is to pulling the Australia into the middle. But at least a smarter Chinese policy of Australia could just drive Canberra. Choice is more issue driven. For example, the trade war, Trump administration is very reckless and noisy, and even a very very tougher you know approach in challenging the liberal world order. So Australia should also be express Australia's concern because if the world order is truly broken to the peace. It's not a damage to the Australians' interest, but also well, just to have to get to the future of our water politics. Just looks very gloomy, so no one can benefit from such a, a trade. Even Australian could just have an issue-based relative contribution to a better of the world. If the Australian can move that way, I think it's a serve the Chinese interest at the best. So the idea that Australia could take an issues-based outlook rather than go with allies on every issue is perhaps slightly lofty. But do you think it's a useful approach that could align Australia with China even unintentionally? I think it's one that will resonate with、um, people who expect China to be pragmatic. What Professor Xu was saying is that、uh, Australia can compartmentalise the China relationship issue by issue rather than seeing Australia. As either wholly in the U.S. camp or wholly in the China camp, it's something that really should be dealt with case by case, and I think both countries can probably find common ground on that. So the final topic that you turned to was the Chinese interaction and presence and its business in the South Pacific. He definitely downplayed China's strategic intent in the South Pacific. I'm not sure I took that completely at face value, but his answer emphasised that China's role was basically mercantilist; that it's there for economic gain, and that、uh, any naval or strategic objective is is exaggerated in his view. I see there a lot of exaggeration in the Australian's debate of the China's relations with South Pacific island countries. I see the China's expanded presence in South Pacific island countries. It's very simply a mercantile list. Beijing want to make a deal. Beijing want to export the goods. Beijing want to build the road and the highway by just exporting the Chinese infrastructure. I don't think the China's naval capability could move that farther, and also just take the Southern Pacific as some sort of a Chinese naval patrolling area. I think the China's any. Dispatch of the warship if it just has it on a regular way, very stupid mess up of our relations with two leading、uh, South Pacific 
players, Australian and in New Zealand, but also just uh, how say some sort of uh, exaggeration of the Chinese level capability in South Pacific. So then, in the foreseeable future, South Pacific is not the China's military concern. China might have no intention of a naval presence in the South Pacific, but it hasn't stopped them making a recent visit to Sydney Harbour and a subsequent tour of the region. So doesn't that give a conflicting impression then, given the answer that he just gave? I tried to challenge Zhu Feng on that by bringing up the visit of the flotilla to Sydney, but he said still that there was unlikely to be a, a, any kind of uh, strategic significance to that, um, that this was really more symbolic. So what was your impression about doing this interview then with Zhu Feng? It must have been challenging for a Chinese scholar in international relations to give an interview like this when there's really nothing to gain by going on the record. That's right. It's unusual in the current climate for Chinese scholars to be, I think, so uh, courageous as to come out and agree to doing an interview without foresight of the questions. There's also a personal aspect to this because Zhu Feng uh, has now been put on a a prescribed uh, individuals list that prevents him from going to the United States. So that was actually our gain. He can come to Australia still, but is no longer able to visit um, America. And the detached analyst in uh, Zhu Feng deserted him at that point because clearly that's personal. It has an impact. He referred to the fact that he'd been directly interrogated on trying to enter the United States and made a fairly impassioned defense that scholars should not be targeted by governments, that scholars should still maintain some ability to have an ongoing dialogue. I think one common theme throughout his answers is that the US and China still need to talk. Well, thanks for bringing this interview to us today, Ewan. I think it's really good to hear about Chinese international issues from a Chinese voice once in a while. So it's been great to hear. Absolutely. I think we need to have more Asian voices generally, but uh, persuading the Chinese voice out of its box is getting more difficult because of the political constraints that apply there. So so this is exactly what Latrobe Asia wants, is uh, more voices from the region talking about the region. And credit to Professor Zhu Feng for being game to have a podcast late on a Sunday night when he had a busy schedule the, fo- the following morning. He brought a great perspective to things. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. You can subscribe to this on iTunes or wherever you may find your podcasts. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. You can follow Ewan Graham on Twitter. He is at Graham underscore Ewan. I'm Matt Smith. I'm Ewan Graham. And thanks for listening. <laughs>